Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Welcome to all of you who are in the room. Uh, I look forward to beginning that new series with you. I think it's timely, the things that the Lord uh, has to say to us in His Word at this moment as a church. I think today's message is equally timely. Uh, if you've been with us over the last several months, really all going all the way back into September, we've been in the middle of a series called Blessed looking at that passage of Scripture that's historically been known as the Beatitudes, Jesus defining for us what it really means to be blessed. I think one of the things that we've been discovering is how counter and against the grain that definition seems when you compare it to the way that so many people, even people within uh, the modern church, would, would define this term, like it has something to do with a new car or a new job or even a good, healthy relationship. Jesus has been describing for us throughout this entire series that there is a state of being that is available to me and to you and to anyone else who follows him, that no matter what happens to you in this world, come what may, pandemic, national division, whatever happens to you, this state of blessedness can never be taken from you. But it's not an easy life. It's a very, very difficult life. And today, we, we, we really are going to examine in conclusion the purpose of why it is that Jesus expects us to live this way. Who in this room, and I wonder really even who's watching from home, who, who's ever been through any kind of basic training for military service? Would you hold up? First of all, thank you for what you did. I appreciate that. Uh, secondly, I never had the opportunity in my life to do that, but I hear it's fun. Yeah, I hear it's a lot of fun. Uh, in fact, our oldest son, uh, several years ago when he was shopping around for colleges, uh, he was courted by a couple of our, our U.S. military academies. He was invited to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy one summer uh, to spend some time being immersed into military life, and he accepted that call. I, I remember distinctly driving him up to Connecticut by myself uh, and then going back to get him sometime later, taking the entire family with us. His mother was so excited to see him, ran up and embraced her. He embraced her probably tighter than I've ever seen him before. There's something about the military that makes a young man appreciate his mom and dad just a little bit more. And, and she said, in the middle of this, as he started talking, she said, son, you don't have a voice. And he said, well, there's been a lot of yelling. Some of you know what that's like, right? And I won't belabor you with all the stories that he told us because so many of you have your own stories about that. And, and if you're like me and you never served in uniform, you may wonder exactly why is the atmosphere like that? Are they just messing with people? Are they just having fun? Is there a reason that you go back to your room and your mattress is three floors down on the ground and you can't find your socks? Is there a reason that someone would make you stick your head in a trash can and talk about how much you love dust bunnies because you left dust in the bottom of a trash can? What's with all the chaos? Are they just trying to be mean? Well, well one of the retired officers from the Coast Guard was actually talking to me. I watched Sam go through that door, and, and I remember them telling him, once you go through that door for the next 168 hours, you belong to us. 
And so when he went through that door, I couldn't see him anymore. I couldn't make contact with him anymore. But I, but I remember talking to one of those retired Coast Guardsman, one of those retired officers who was volunteering to help run this summer program. And he said to me, Mr. Randy, there's a reason we put them through the paces like this. We're not just trying to be mean. There is a reason for everything, from the sharing meals to the room inspection to the physical training. And yeah, your boy's probably going to throw up. They all do. Don't worry about it. There's a reason we do this. We intend to keep these kids in a constant state of stress. We want everything around them to be completely unpredictable and full of chaos. And the reason for that is because if they do join the U.S. military, they may very well find themselves in a situation one day where at 2 a.m. while they're sound asleep, the ship they're on gets torpedoed. And if that happens, they ain't got time to cry about it. They've got to be ready for it. They've got to react. They've got to know that this is coming. We don't do this because we're trying to be mean. We do this because we are preparing our people for what we know they will likely face, which is another way of saying that all that stress and all that chaos was really intended to save their lives. Now, you, you think about that for a minute, and let, let's, let's impute some of those lessons to the series that we've been looking at. So the last several weeks, we've been learning what Jesus teaches us about being blessed and we've discovered that that term is, is very different from some of the meanings our culture and even what some of the modern church has imputed to it compared to our understanding of what it means to be blessed compared to the way that word gets hashtagged on so many social media feeds. You come to the conclusion, well, Jesus' understanding of this term not only is radically different, it's kind of harsh. It's very, very difficult. It's very, sometimes even chaotic. I mean, think about it. Who in their right mind rejoices at persecution and hardship. Who would do that? Who in the middle of this, I mean, I would whine if in my natural state, this is what happens, right? You get persecuted, you whine about it, right? Who would take joy over that? Who in this dog-eat-dog -dog world would dare think that meekness is a higher virtue? And yet Jesus tells us that state of being that, that I can have that's available to me, it transcends my circumstances, uh, that way to live in blessing, no matter what happens to me, kind of, it's kind of like military training. It, it requires some things of me. And, and Jesus doesn't require those things of me to be mean to me. It might look chaotic, but what's actually happening is we're being prepared for something. We're being prepared for something. And so I, I want to share with you the conclusion to this series this morning. I think it it dovetails so well. I had no idea what Brother Mike was going to talk about last week. I so appreciate him uh, as he shared that his appreciation for me. But his, his message on hardship, if you were not here, if you were not listening, you really need to go back and, and listen to that. It dovetails so well in, into what God's Word has to say to us today. Why does God sometimes say to people, suck it up? Why does he say, deal with it? Is he some kind of harsh taskmaster? No, it's because he's got something better for us than our current situation might indicate. And I want you to see two very obvious statements. Jesus, first of all, says this in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You want to know why I'm calling you to all of this? Because this is who you are. I want to see this embodied in you individually. I want to see it embodied in you corporately as the body of Christ, the salt of of the earth. He goes on and he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out 
and trampled under people's feet. Now, over the years, we've developed this, uh, a particular cultural understanding of this colloquial phrase, salt of the earth, uh, to mean something that's not really bad, but also not really what Jesus has in mind here. Uh, the dictionary definition in the modern age of salt of the earth is a metaphor for an individual or a group considered as representative of the best or noblest elements of society, right? I like Mary. She's salt of the earth. What am I saying when I'm saying that? I'm saying, boy, she's the best representative of, you know, her people, whoever her people are supposed to be. Salt of the earth people, the best and the noblest. And so it, the, the difficulty is you, you read the words of Jesus through that lens and you're going to start telling people things that Jesus didn't really mean. I mean, as early as toddler class in church, you're going to go, okay, nobody else will share. You need to share. And, and when your classmates use those dirty words, you don't do that. You don't use that kind of language. And when others later on in life, and you grow up a little bit, and they use drugs, and you, you stay away from that because you need to be the salt of the earth. Now, those are all good lessons. We should teach our children that. That's just not what Jesus was teaching at this particular moment. How do I know that? Because the earliest Christians who followed Jesus were not viewed by the wider culture as the best or noblest in society. The Emperor Nero accused these men and women of cannibalism. Domitian had them boiled in oil. The Roman Empire in general, until that great civil religion experiment took place under Constantine that was an absolute disaster for the next 1,000 years, up until that point... The Roman Empire in general viewed these people as a threat to the security of the state. And so when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, he's not talking about the way you're perceived necessarily by people outside of this tribe of Christianity. He's referring instead to this element that was considered far more valuable in the first century than it is today, salt. Every time I go out to eat, I use salt, probably more than I should, all right? If I run out of salt, I go to the store and I buy salt. It's never occurred to me in my entire life that we might run out of salt. And so when I see Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth, I'm tempted to just sort of breeze on past that and forget that in the first century, this was an incredibly valuable commodity to the extent that some people, including Roman soldiers, were paid with it. Right? You didn't get a check stub with all your withdrawals and withholdings and all that. You, you got paid in bags of salt. You may say, man, I, I wouldn't take that job. Well, in the first century you would have because it was an incredibly valuable commodity. So valuable, in fact, so impressed upon the culture was this idea that our word salary, actually, the etymology of the term comes from the same Latin root. So if you get paid a salary, this is what it's talking about. And, and, and here's why salt was valuable. It did two things that we don't necessarily need it to do anymore. It preserved and it enhanced. That's what it did. And so if it lost its ability to do either of those two things, it still had one other use. There was one other thing you could do with it. You, you could fill potholes with it. Um, some of us driving on these West Virginia roads might like for that to be done with some asphalt filling, right? Um, by the way, I, my, I was born in January, so my birthday's coming up. My birthstone, I don't even remember what the actual birth, but it's a really fancy word for asphalt. That's what it is. It's, it's pressed together asphalt. So whatever you're, if you were born in January like me, that's, that's your birthstone. Filling potholes. 
They throw this stuff in the road, and, and, and the, the chemical breakdown of it was such that at the microscopic level, it would interlock, and it would force itself down as people walked on it, uh, as wagon wheels rolled across, it would press it down and, and even out that road. But over time, and this is Jesus' point, no one would even recognize that it was there anymore. Let me submit to you that that's exactly what is happening to so much of the church today. Uh, in, the, in the American church in particular, we almost have this psychological codependent relationship with culture. If you lean more progressive, you, you, you're obsessed with pleasing it, right? I mean, we just got to make it happy. If, if there's something going on, if there's, if there's some, sort of, uh, some sort of warfare going on between the church and the wider culture, it must be because the church just isn't really being the church. If you're more conservative, you, you tend to just look for persecution under almost every freaking rock to the extent that you almost relish in the fact that culture hates you and you get to a point if you're not careful where you're not going to be hated anymore because you're a Christian, you're going to be hated because you're an arrogant jerk. And this is where we are. And you, know, you want to know what the, the sad reality is in the middle of all of that codependency? Most of the culture don't even know we're here. Some states back during the lockdown classified the church as non-essential. Does that make you mad? Yeah. If it made you mad, did you ever stop to ask why? Did you ever stop for a minute and think, why would it be that they would, I mean, is this really persecution? Is it, what's, what's going on here? Think beyond your COVID persecution complex for a bit. What does it mean that so many people in certain parts of this nation would view the body of Christ as non-essential. When we first moved to Shepherdstown years ago, this is what I learned. This church that not long, probably not too many years before I had come, had reached its, the height, the largest it at least has been in its history, somewhere around 1,300 worshipers at that point. And so I started asking around town. I thought, surely a church this large, people are going to know it's here. They may love it. They may hate it. They may... I, the number of people who had no clue who we were or that we were here, it surprised me on the one hand. It really didn't surprise me on the other hand because I'd been asking that same question in town after town with about 560 churches in my former role. But, but this is what I, I ran into. Wasn't known by people in a town not two miles from here where our largest geographic footprint should be. And what recognition I did here was this. Oh, yeah, that's that big building out there on the pike. Yeah, they have like big events or something like that, don't they, all the time? But I don't know anything much about it. It seems like this huge kind of self-contained city. The word cult got tossed around a little bit. Not because of what we believed. They didn't know what we believed. They just saw this big old compound and figured we, we existed for ourselves. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really know who they are or, or why they're there. And incidentally, if any of you have been here for a long time have wondered why this pastor absolutely refuses to take you back to your quote-unquote glory days, that's why. That's why. The answer is not to look for some bygone day. We have got so many people in the church looking back to the 80s and the 90s. Boy, if we could just get back. How about we go forward? God created time in a, in a, in a chronological fashion. It has a beginning. It has an end. We're on the continuum. And by his divine providence, we ain't going backwards. We're not. And so, so the answer is to become salty. 
Because when you add flavor to yourself and thus to the community and thus to the world, when you preserve what can hold a culture together, that's when people start to take notice. In fact, I wonder if Jesus were delivering this message, not in the first century, but in 2020, and not in ancient Palestine, but instead in the West Virginia panhandle, if he might not have used a different metaphor. I wonder if today, if he were up here speaking to us, if instead of saying you are the salt of the earth, Jesus might have said instead, you are the cinnamon spice of the earth. Anybody ever been to the Shepherdstown Fire Department during apple butter season? Come on now, somebody say amen. I know it's COVID. I know many of us couldn't go down there and volunteer, but next year you need to go down there and volunteer. And this year, if you like that stuff, you need to go buy yourself some apple butter. This is the best stuff you ever tasted. I go down there as often as I can during that season. Amy and I, the kids, sometimes we'll help them with, with the stirring of the pot. And, and what's interesting is, is, is it's, you know, these huge 50-gallon kettles, and for hours and hours and hours, this stuff sits in there, and it simmers in there. And you're like, yeah, this, this smells pretty good. This, this could be pretty good. But it's almost like, I remember the first time I did it, I thought, this really doesn't smell like it, it's this. I, I don't think apple butter, even when I look at this stuff, I think applesauce. And, and applesauce isn't bad, but I'm not three anymore. Like, I, I want apple butter. You know what made the difference? You know why I'm telling you you need to go spend that $8? And you know why I can tell you what I think it's going to be the best Apple butter you ever put in your mouth? One little ingredient. Coy Beverage, one of our fire department firefighters, while I was stirring it, walked up to this 50-gallon kettle and poured in four ounces of cinnamon spice. And immediately, that whole room filled up. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Four ounces of that stuff added to 50 gallons in the kettle, made this old boy want to plunge his face. I did not. You're safe. You can go buy it, right? But, but it, it was that eight, right? I want to plunge my face into that kettle. That's what Jesus is talking about. Preserving, enhancing influence on everything and everyone around us. It doesn't take large numbers. It doesn't take tens of millions of dollars. It doesn't take a room full of PhDs. Anyway, it just takes a few people committed to be salty. That's all it takes. And I, I'm going to say something right now that, that it, really, you're going to go, really, I came here to hear this today. I know that it's just like something you don't already know. The world's in a real mess right now. Have you noticed? It takes people pure in heart. It takes people who are meek. It takes people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It takes people who are merciful, who are willing to mourn together. It takes those people uniting together, invading that darkness. There's a lot of division going around right now. Have you noticed that? It's not new, by the way. You may think this all that's going on right now, swirling around you is some new thing. It's not. It's just sort of reached ahead. It's been building up for 30 years. Maybe I'll talk about that later, but today my job is to preach the gospel. There's a lot of that stuff going around. People around us are literally dying. 270,000 plus, and that's just from the virus. We haven't talked about the mental health cost of this. We haven't talked about the economic cost and what it's driven people into. We haven't talked about all the other normal mortality that happens in our world. There's a lot of death, far more than the average amount that we might see. 
And in that environment, it doesn't matter how large or how rich or how happy you are, it is legitimate if you're a follower of Jesus to ask this question, what am I here for? Why am I here? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. The entire atmosphere around you should be different simply because you are here. And the reason for that comes in this second declarative statement. Verse 15, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In other words, yes, we're to make a difference, but not in the same sense that that a humanitarian civil servant might make a difference. When we serve, we do so as agents of Jesus who described himself in this way in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's the, here's the big idea. The light of Jesus himself is to be refracted through his people who illuminate the world that they inhabit. Now to get an accurate picture of this mentality, let's go back and consider again the first century. There were no street lights. There were no headlights. There were no generator powered lights. There was simply after a certain period in the evening, darkness. And so if you lit a fire, a source of light of any kind, that source it would, that emanated from there, it would go out sometimes for miles, depending on where you were and how the dark night, how dark the night was. And people would see it. And people would be attracted to it. So, so that's the big idea. Those Jesus described in the Beatitudes, right? That, that we're not just trying to be hard on you. Jesus is not just trying to tell us, well, this is hard and you just have to endure. Even as Pastor Mike said last week, yes, we endure, but there's a purpose behind it. The mourners will be comforted. The pure in heart they will see God. The peacemakers, like their father, will run toward violence and division, and they will bring peace. Those people together, as they do their work, refract and project the light of Jesus himself in a way that attracts people to the gospel, just as Jesus describes himself in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the bottom line? It means we can feed the hungry, we can heal the sick, we can shelter the homeless, we can help the addict recover, we can equip the unemployed for work, and we can and we have and we will continue to do all of that at Covenant. But at the end of the day, people do, do not, as a result of what we do, they don't see Jesus, know Jesus. If some of them do not surrender to Jesus because they've seen a foretaste of that coming king and his kingdom in us, then it's time for us to close up shop and give our resources to the American Red Cross. Because honestly, they could probably do a better job. That, that's what we've been doing, right? We, we create a Christian equivalent to something that exists in the world that already works pretty well. And as a dear colleague of mine at Southeastern Seminary used to say, oftentimes the difference between a Christian product and a non-Christian product is the Christian product doesn't work as well, but it costs a lot more because we're trying to create our own culture rather than allow Jesus oozing through us, reflect, refracting the light of the gospel to create what only God can create. They've got to know 
Jesus. If you're truly the church, if we are truly going to be the church, and I'm talking about in this hour, I have some specific things to share with you about how are we going to be the body of Christ in this hour. Well, if first thing is to be what Jesus declares us to be here, the light of the world, a people who shine the light of Jesus himself into the darkness. Now, here's, here's the big temptation, particularly in our context. And it's been a temptation for us really over the last century. COVID didn't create this. COVID's like, you know, if you go upstairs in your attic today and you hit the chain light and, and you see rats scatter, the light didn't create the rats, all right? It just revealed them. COVID hasn't really created any new crises or, or any new temptation in the church. It's just revealing. Crisis always does two things. I've told our staff this over and over again over the last eight months. Crisis accelerates and crisis magnifies. It reveals who you really are. And, it, and, and wh whatever direction you were headed into, that particular director, trajectory, it accelerates it. You may have only thought you were headed in one direction, but you're actually headed in an entirely different direction. And over the past half century, rather than embody what Jesus has told us to embody, the temptation has been to have a great debate over which of these is more important. Should our primary role be the proclamation of the gospel, or should it be the, the ministry to the vulnerable? Should it be feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting those in prison, doing those things that, that Jesus commands us to do in, in Matthew 25? Should we speak primarily to an individual need for salvation, or should we work toward the harmony of all society? Which is more important? Is it Matthew 25, where Jesus in pretty literal terms tells us that the genuineness of our faith is measured by our ministry to the hungry the thirsty the imprisoned and the naked or, or is it Matthew 28 that where Jesus again in no very clear literal terms tells us that we're to make disciples throughout the world of every nation of people asking that question is kind of like asking which wing of the airplane you'd prefer Ours, because here's what we've done. More liberal, progressive denominations, tribes of Christians have leaned more toward Matthew 25 almost to the exclusion and sometimes to the complete exclusion of Matthew 28. We're going to feed the hungry, we're going to do all this. But when it comes to the asking of the why question, we presume to bring a kingdom without somehow mentioning that there's a king. And he has a name. Jesus, and this is what he demands of all who will follow him. If you lean more conservative, and I've seen this more so probably over the last four years, any mention of Matthew 25 is now Marxism. It's like complete category confusion. Just because some of the same words get used doesn't mean that a category of, of political ideology is being wholesale endorsed. We don't start here with a reaction to things we don't like, brothers and sisters. We start here with looking at the words that Jesus actually spoke. And when he said, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, give clothing to the naked, visit those in prison, he did not stutter. And it is amazingly appalling to me how many Bible churches are so unbiblical. 
because they want to ignore roughly half of what Jesus told us to do. Our task is not to argue about which one. It's not to fight over the left wing or the right wing of the plane. The task of followers of Jesus, you remember I said this at the outset of this message, right? At the outset of this entire series, this is what we're going to learn from the blessed series. Followers of Jesus are not people that have necessarily accepted a particular ideology or people that have filled their head with all kinds of knowledge. Followers of Jesus hear his voice and they obey without question. That's what we're being called to do. You're like, well, what does that look like at Covenant? Well, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Some of you have seen this picture before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to you again because we've got a lot of new folks. And um, it's something that I shared probably three years ago to give you an example of where we've been and where we need to head. This first picture is a cruise ship. Anybody ever been on a cruise ship? I don't do it anymore because I gain too much weight. It's, I, I don't know, it's going to be different things for different people. For me, it's that soft serve machine. It's, it's like a magnet in my gut. It's like if I'm within 30 feet of that thing, I got to go. And, and my wife laughed because at one point during, on our 10-year anniversary, we went to Cozumel, went on a cruise ship to Cozumel. She saw me coming out with one in each hand. Um, but, 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 but there's a reason behind that, right? There's a reason the average person gains eight pounds on a cruise ship. It's because there's a culture around that cruise ship, Right? It's a, it's a culture of vacation. It's a culture of service. It's a culture of rest. It's a culture of, I, I need to get what I came here for. I need to get what I paid for. That's not necessarily wrong if you're taking a cruise. You bring that mentality into the house of God, and in its conservative or its liberal form, it's one of the most antichrist things you've ever seen in your life. Because it's all about me and what am I going to get? And, I, and I, I said this about three years ago. I said, we are in the midst. Revitalization is not just about trying to fill the seats again and trying to get the offerings back up and trying to be the big show in town and the it church and all that. I don't give a rat's rear end about any of that. I told you that in 2016. The object is to become the church of the living God. And for us, the best analogy I could think of is strip down the cruise ship, rebuild a battleship. What's the culture of a battleship? Remember what my son experienced? Yeah, discipline. What's going on in the battleship culture? What's going to happen when that young ensign looks at the captain and says, there's a spot on my fork. Could you get me another fork? What's going to happen when there's a torpedo that comes at 2 a.m. and a kid starts crying in his bunk or a kid starts going, well, my goodness, it was almost four and I was going to have breakfast by five. You see how radically different these cultures are? At a battleship culture, everybody's sharing in the operation of the ship and over it all, there's a realization. We're not on a cruise. We're at war. This is what he's called us to do. And, and here's what's been happening over the last 36 months, roughly. We have been retrofitting this ship. This old cruiser has been stripped down. It has been rebuilt, recommissioned as a battleship. The issue, however, is that 
you got to avoid the temptation of having the mindset and the culture of a cruise ship when you're on a battleship. You can't do that. Here's something that I didn't know was coming either. COVID and everything that's followed this year was the first torpedo. So how can you tell whether you're really embodying who Jesus has called us to be in this environment? What's the difference between a cruise ship mentality and a battleship mentality? Let me give you just a couple of examples. A cruise ship mentality in a church looks at 2020 and says, what on earth do we do? A battleship mentality already knows what to do because it got its marching orders from Jesus before all of this started. A cruise ship mentality in a year like 2020 in the church says, when are we going to get back to normal? A battleship mentality tells you and recognizes chaos is the normal. And God is calling us into this. A cruise ship mentality, I'm not coming back until things get back to normal. Oh, I'm meddling now, aren't I? A battleship says, I'm going to be the church with the church right here, right now. I'm going to avail myself of opportunities all over this place to serve my brothers and sisters and to serve the larger community and make the impact that Jesus is calling me to make. A cruise ship mentality in the church in 2020 asks, what's in it for me? Where are all those programs I used to enjoy? What used to happen? A battleship mentality in the church of the living God in 2020. You know what it does? It gathers together with other people who have a battleship mentality. It recognizes the level of trauma that's been afflicted, not just on the world, but in our particular region. It understands not just COVID, but all of the things that have re have been a reaction to that, including massive loss of employment, including people who are living in poverty now who've never been in poverty before, a level of economic crisis that you and I, most of us at least, have never seen in our lifetimes. And those people gather together and they feed nearly 30,000 people. That's what that church does. We just don't have enough of you yet. Can I say something without you thinking I'm mad at you? I'm not mad at you. I love you. I love you. Some of you need to quit whining and get to work. This is what God has called us to. Quit pontificating and get to work. There is a battle out there, and it ain't the one you think it is. It's not this puny little election thing that's over some temporary kingdom that Jesus is one day going to crush if it even lasts that long. It is over making the crown rights of King Jesus known everywhere our feet touch the ground. We've already, we've already gotten a little taste of what that feels like. Some of you have, haven't you? Yeah. Feels good, doesn't it? Is it hard? Yeah. Because it doesn't feel good like a day at the beach. It feels good like I finally got my max reps in. It doesn't feel good like your next Mai Tai came exactly when you needed it to come, right? When your other one was running out, while you were laying on a, on a chair, on the Lido deck. It doesn't feel good in that way. It feels good like you just finished your next CrossFit section, and you got on the scales, and you met your goal. This is what Jesus is after. It's what it's after for you and for me. The blessed life is about getting ready for spiritual warfare. 
The Beatitudes are all about changing my disposition and my attitude and my perception of everything around me for service on a spiritual battleship. And when we have done that, we will be an army that is characterized by poverty of spirit by mourning over sin and its effects, by meekness, by mercy, by purity of heart, by peacemaking, by the enduring of persecution and hardship, the result of that will be the inheritance of the only eternal kingdom that we are promised, but that is most assuredly coming. Some of you may know the name of Hudson Taylor, 19th century missionary. He founded something called the China Inland Mission had an amazing influence on that nation and its people. And a few decades after his death, right in the middle of Mao's cultural revolution, the country's communist leaders were trying to strip away as much of the past as was humanly possible. Let's just do away with it. My, my wife and I have been there. I've been there a couple times. We've been through the old Hutong villages. There's, there's maybe a half a dozen of them left in Beijing. Mao did his best to destroy every bit of that history. And, and so in the middle of that, they commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor because they recognized Taylor's had a large influence on our people. And, and if we're going to counter anything that he says, we're going to have to present him in the most negative light possible. And so this author was commissioned to write a fake biography of Hudson Taylor to present him to the Chinese as a despotic morally bankrupt Western colonialist. That's all he was. But in this author's research, he became captivated by Hudson's life. I don't know the rest of the story. I don't know what happened to this man, although I would imagine, given the, the environment of China at that point, the guys in the white vans probably rode up and took him away somewhere. and They never heard from him again. I do know this. He could not finish that book with a clear conscience. You want to know why? Because Hudson Taylor in his life so embodied the values of the kingdom. He didn't just preach it. He lived it that decades after his death and against the grain of everything the communist government was trying to paint him as, the Chinese who got close enough to him. Decades after he was in the ground, they could still taste the salt. They could still see the light. And Jesus wants to give you that kind of life. Jesus, if you follow him, wants you to embody that life. If you haven't ever followed him, would you come to him today so that he can give you that capacity, so that he can take the hopelessness and give you hope, not by changing your circumstances necessarily, but by giving you joy and peace, all those things that Pastor Mike talked about last week, that is the promise of the kingdom. Come to him today. If you're watching us online, you can go to connect2covenant.com and you can just check that box that says, I have decided I want to follow Jesus today. We'll follow up with you. Put a message in the thread if you happen to be watching on our Facebook platform. There's a pastor there waiting for you right now, real time. They will be responding to you. If you want to respond and come to Jesus today, there are going to be men and women right out here. Just find somebody with a lanyard. Tell them, listen, I want to know more about what it means to follow this king and allow them the privilege and the opportunity to share Jesus with you. I'll be out here after the service. I'll take as much time as I need with you. If I need to set up an appointment, we come back later. We talk about this. This is what we're all about here. Growing, passionate followers of Jesus who serve all people. That mission statement way predates me. The question is, are we going to embody it? Heavenly Father, as we finish this series, we thank you for the clear and the strong words 
of Jesus. We ask you in his name to allow the Holy Spirit to just make these words settle in our hearts, to disturb us even from the, to the point of being able to sleep until we embody what you desire for your children to embody. And Lord Jesus, may that begin today. I pray for those who've never followed you, who are listening to my voice right now. Holy Spirit, convict them to the point that they run to you. And Father, make us responsive and ready to respond to them as they seek to follow you. For those who, who need, have recognized their need to embody this life that you have so beautifully described. Father, give them the ability. Father, give them the will. Give them the strength to choose that life and to endure in that life. For great reward is coming. Great reward is coming. And in the meantime, we get to see small little glimpses. Father, what a glorious day it's going to be one day when you, uh, when you call us to heaven and you pull that curtain back and you reveal everything that you were doing that, that you were even intentionally hiding from us so that we needn't get to the, the prideful place of thinking somehow we're doing something without you. But until that moment, Lord, give us glimpses of your kingdom. Help us to pursue it with all of our might. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.